Well, as we continue our worship, let me just take a moment to, to pray over our time in the Word as well. Father, we are grateful, not just for our new members and our time of worship in song and giving at the table of communion, but we're also grateful for our time of worship in your Word. Lord, as we approach your Word, as you've already prepared our hearts, we pray that you would continue to do so, that you would allow your Word um, to be like a seed planted in our hearts, that our hearts, hearts would not be hardened, but would be softened by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we might be able to receive the truths therein, that we might walk in obedience to them, and that we might share them with anyone we have an opportunity to do that with. And so, Father, in light of your word, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. And we pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I had an opportunity to have a conversation with a gentleman at one of the outreaches that we had uh, for Twin Rivers. And as I sat down to talk with this gentleman and just walk him through the plan of salvation, he, he quickly informed me that not only did he not believe the Bible to be true, he did not believe the God of the Bible to be real. He informed me that the Bible was just a man-made book full of lies, not God-inspired. He let me know that God was not the God of the Bible, but God can be found in the sky. He can be found in the creation. He can be found in himself, but he also pointed to me, this is a little concerning, he said he can be found in you. And as he was explaining this to me, I just paused and I said, sir, would you mind if I just ask you a question? Would you indulge me for just a moment? And he agreed. And I said, sir, can you imagine for me with, for just a moment that, that you pass from this life to the next because, you know, we're not promised tomorrow. And you pass from this life to the next and it turns out that you meet your maker, you meet your creator. And it turns out that the word of God is true and that the God of the Bible is real. And you have a chance to give an account before him. What excuse would you give for having not trusted in Jesus to forgive your sins as we've just talked about he didn't necessarily answer the question. He asked, where in the Bible does it say those who are in their sins and have not accepted Christ are going to give an account? And I said, well, I'd love to read it to you in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And he gave me the courtesy to read that text to him. And I know the conversation wasn't going to necessarily go anywhere. So I proceeded by telling him this. I said, sir, the reason why I'm sitting down and having this conversation with you is because, number one, I, I, I believe the word of God to be true. And because I love you enough to share this with you. And I said, if you believed it to be true and you loved me enough, wouldn't you be telling me the same thing? And he at least agreed to that. And as we concluded our conversation, I said, sir, I just want you to seriously consider the conversation that we've had, not just about the plan of salvation, but I want you to seriously consider whether or not the word of God is true and if the God of the Bible is real, because if he is, my prayer is that you would be prepared to meet your maker prepared to meet your creator, not still in your sins, but delivered from it, rescued from it, having trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. This morning, I want to begin by asking you a similar question in light of that conversation I had. If you were to pass from this life into the next at this moment, knowing that we're not promised tomorrow, how prepared would you be to meet your maker? 
This morning, I want to take some time to talk about not just how to prepare ourselves to meet our maker, but why we need to be prepared to meet our maker and why we need to encourage others to be prepared as well. We're going to answer that question in 2 Peter. I'd invite you there in your Bibles, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to the middle of verse 10. As you make your way there in your Bibles, Peter, who is writing this letter, is writing this letter towards the end of his life. This is almost like his farewell letter, his farewell greeting. And in this letter, up to this point, we've learned that Peter has been warning the believers in the church about the dangers that are coming from the inside out. Not dangers that are coming from the outside in, but dangers coming from the inside out in the form of false teachers. And in chapter 2, the reason Peter tells us false teachers are dangerous, the manner in which he introduced them and described them, are those who deceptively or secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, they call themselves Christians and they look like Christians, but the reality is they don't teach the truth of God's word. They deny the Lord who bought them and they bring on themselves destructive, uh, swift destruction. Well, having introduced them and described them in the first three verses, in verses 4 to 10, where we're going to be this morning, Peter is going to describe the fate of false teachers. The fate of false teachers and all those who follow them, but not just the fate of false teachers, but the fate of all who die in their sins, having rejected Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to talk about why we need to be prepared to meet our maker and why we should encourage others to do the same. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, I want to ask and answer this question. Why should we prepare ourselves to meet our maker? Why should we be prepared to meet him at any moment? Why should we encourage others to prepare themselves to meet their maker at any moment? Why should we have an eternal perspective, not just think about life in the here and now, but life in light of what's going to come in the future? What we're going to see, a short answer, if I could just give you what we're going to talk about today, is that the answer is because God is a God of wrath, a God of rescue, and a God of consistency. 
God is a God of wrath to those who reject him and walk in ungodliness. God is a God of rescue to those who receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And God is a God of consistency to the very end. You know, as we're going to unpack verses 4 to the middle of verse 10, in the original Greek, this um, section is just one run-on sentence. Uh, Peter just goes on and on in the original Greek, and if ever you see a run-on sentence, a lot of times you may say, that's a little bit confusing, or, or that can be difficult to understand, but when you say, take a look at the structure of verses 4 to 10, the structure and the argument is simple. It's a, it's a if-then argument. The if portion of the argument is found in verses 4 to 8. The then portion of the argument is found in verses 9 and 10. And this is the argument. If God was a God of wrath and rescue in the past, punishing the ungodly and preserving the righteous, then God in the future will continue to be a God of wrath and a God of rescue in the future. And so as we unpack this text, we're going to talk about why you and I need to be prepared at any moment to meet our maker. The first reason we need to be prepared to meet our maker at any moment is because in verses 4 to 6, God is a God of wrath. And because God is a God of wrath, my prayer for you and for me is that when you meet your maker, you would not be found among the unrighteous, but you would be found among the redeemed. In order to argue this, to argue the fact that the fate of the ungodly in the past is going to be the same fate of the ungodly in the future, Peter gives us three examples in the past how God has punished the ungodly. And if God has not spared the ungodly in the past, the confidence that we have as believers is that God will not spare the ungodly in the future. So the first example that he uses in verse 4 is the example of these fallen angels, these angels who sinned, and if God did not spare them, the expectation is God will not spare the unrighteous in the future. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of of darkness to be reserved for judgment, the then statement in verse 9 is then God will also not spare the unrighteous in the future. Um, as we consider this argument here, that if God did not spare the ungodly in the past, he will not spare the ungodly in the future, let's consider who are these angels who have sinned. The argument is if God hasn't spared them, he won't spare the ungodly in the future. These angels are described here as those who sinned. Now the question is, how did they sin in such an egregious way that God, having having um, judged them and punished them, has placed them in a unique place where they are constrained until the day of judgment. Well, some people say this is referring to um, the fall of, of Satan that happened alongside of the fall of one-third of the angels. You read about that in texts like Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. You read about the fall of Satan uh, let me read that to you. It reads this way in 
Uh, Isaiah 14, 12 to 17, speaking of Satan's fall, which also happened the same time as when the third of the angels fell. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I, I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this man who made the earth, earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? You can also read Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. But where these angels fell originally along with Satan is found in Revelation 12, verses 3 to 4. There you see this, and another sign appeared. Behold, a great fiery dragon having seven heads and ten horns. This is speaking of Satan. And seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars in heaven. That's speaking of these fallen angels. A third of them fell and threw them to the earth. Verse 9 identifies this dragon as Satan. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil. And so possibly this could be referring to their sin in regards to their original fall. But while that may be a possibility, it probably refers to what's described in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 6, you read about those who were the sons of God, referring to these angels who had relationships with the daughters of men. And we read about that in Genesis in, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And then verse 4 says this, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, they were mighty men who were, who were of old, men of renown. And so when we're talking about these angels who sinned, how did they sin? It says here that these angels had, these sons of God, these angels had relationships with the daughters of men, some sort of sexual relationships. Now the question is, can angels actually have these kind of relationships with men? Well, Matthew tells us uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. So how is it possible for angels to have sexual relations with the daughters of men? Well, possibly you possess the bodies of men and then have relations accordingly. I don't have all the answers this morning, but what we do know is that these angels sinned in such a way, in such an ungodly way, that God has constrained them for a time until the day of judgment. And if God has not spared these angels, what makes you think that God will spare the ungodly in the future? The text continues and gives us more of the details. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell... That Greek term in the Greek there is the only time it's used. It's the word Tartarus. 
It speaks of the place where uh, individuals go for judgment as they await their future, uh, the future, the future fi final judgment down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness. And so the manner in which these individuals are described, these angels are judged, is that they are constrained. They're, act they're unable to go around the earth, fully able to walk around and go about their business. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you read about Satan who walks around the earth like a roaring lion. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But verse 4 tells us, they've been delivered into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. What is the argument there? If the fate of these angels who sinned is that of punishment in the past, then the fate of those who are ungodly will be punishment in the future. So that's the first example. The second example we find in verse 5 is in regards to the days of Noah and the ancient world. Verse 5 says, and, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of flood on the world of the ungodly. So, if God didn't spare these disobedient angels, and God did not spare the ancient world in the days of Noah, what makes you think that God is going to spare the ungodly in the future? God doesn't change. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of wrath as we're being focused on here, but he's also a God of rescue and consistency as we're going to see in a moment. Now, when we talk about the days of Noah and we talk about the ark, a lot of times we think about it in the context of Sunday school class, and it's a nice story. You have an ark that, the, that, that, that Noah is delivered from, and he takes on the ark, all of these different animals, two by two. But when you think about how God preserved righteous Noah, you don't always talk about in Sunday school class how God punished the rest of the world, wiping them out with a flood because their wickedness was so great in the eyes of God. And if God punished the wicked in the days of Noah, the entirety of the ancient world except for Noah and his family, how much more will God punish the ungodly in the future? What we're reminded of here this morning is God is a God of wrath. And if he punished the ungodly in the past and did not spare him, what makes you think that he's going to spare the ungodly in the future? The third example is Lot. If you walk through Genesis 6 into 7 and then go to Genesis 18 and 19, you then hear about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the next verse reads this way, and, and turn and... Uh, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So what did God do with Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of their unrighteousness, because of their sin, because of their sexual immorality, because of their violence, because of their wickedness, he didn't spare them. And this seems like a, a pretty severe kind of judgment. Not just flooding the earth in the days of Noah, but in the days of Lot, just raining down fire and brimstone, sulfur, to completely destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And what we're reminded here is God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. The God who punishes the ungodly in the Old Testament, you can be certain and confident that he will punish the ungodly in the New. And what Peter does for us is he gives us these three examples to remind us that the fate of the ungodly in the past was punishment, so you better expect that the fate of the ungodly in the future will also be punishment. This morning, we're not here to just preach to you a seeker-sensitive message, but to teach to you the truth of the Word of God. And when you consider what the text is talking to us about, what we're being told here is that the reason we need to be prepared to meet our maker at any moment is because God is a God of wrath. And if God is a God of wrath, then condemnation is real. And those who walk in ungodliness and those who reject Christ and refuse to receive forgiveness of sins through his sacrificial death on the cross, the result is clear here. Their end is doom. Their end is eternal punishment. Listen, this is a reality we need to consider, not just for our sake, but for the sake of those around us who are going to die in their sins and spend an eternity without God and his people forever and ever. If God is a God of wrath, then condemnation is real. But secondly, hell is real. Hell is real. As Christians, sometimes hell makes us a little bit uncomfortable, the idea of hell. As you're having conversations with folks, we we don't often like to talk about hell. After all, what should motivate you to follow Jesus and to have a personal relationship with him? Shouldn't it be heaven? Shouldn't it be wanting Jesus in, in my heart, in my life? But it's just as great a motivation to be motivated to run from the destruction and death of hell that is an eternity without God and his people as we are motivated to run into the redeeming arms of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we don't like to bring up the subject of hell because, as I said, it's embarrassing. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable. But how many of you know Jesus talked a lot about hell? He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And uh, according to um, certain stats, it says 13% of the 1,850 verses in the New Testament that record the words of Jesus deal with the subject of eternal judgment and hell. Um, 13 times Gehenna is the term that Jesus used to, uses to speak of a literal place called hell. Gehenna was actually a location south of Jerusalem, a place that was used as a garbage dump, but also for executed criminals whose bodies would be burned. And so can you imagine going to a place like Gehenna and spending an hour there, let alone an eternity there? And Gehenna, the literal location, is a reminder of the eternal location, which is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, as the lake of fire. And so Jesus actually took time to talk about these things. And Jesus, when he talked about hell, he talked about a literal place. When Jesus talked about heaven, he talked about an actual place, right? John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. If heaven is a real place, hell is a real place as well. 
Let me tell you this morning, when you die and meet your maker, if you still die in your sins, the judgment is not annihilation where you cease to exist. The judgment is eternal punishment where you will spend an eternity without God and his people forever and ever. That's a hellish existence, but it's described in Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 as a lake of fire. I don't want to be there, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me read to you further what Jesus said about that and in relationship to Noah and Lot. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 30, it says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, wives they were given in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, this is Jesus, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out to Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In Second Peter, why was why was there hell and brimstone, fire and brimstone that came down on them as a deterrent and in his example that if you continue on the path of the ungodly, God will not spare them. God will punish them. Hell is a real place. If God did not spare the ungodly with these three examples, and Jesus taught the same, why are we so quick not to talk about the idea of hell as well because it makes us uncomfortable, because we're sometimes embarrassed by it. Well, this should be just as great of a motivation to run from the fire pit of hell into the arms of Jesus whose arms are open wide to offer forgiveness and grace to anyone who might receive it. Robert Jefferson, one of his books called Hell, Yes, he suggests that there are a number of common objections to the idea of hell. I wanted to talk about three of them this morning. The first common objection to hell or the idea of hell is that God is too loving to send us to hell. Because God is too loving, he is too loving to send us to hell. But the, but the problem with that premise is it... it, it, it it requires one to believe that God's not that good and we're not that bad. Listen, if God is too loving to send anyone to hell, what we end up believing is God's not that good. We, we believe that, that, that God tolerates sin as much as we do. You know, we live in a day and an age in our culture where the highest virtue, the, the, highest, um, the highest moral uh, characteristic is that of tolerance. If you tolerate others, if you tolerate sin, if you, if you tolerate other people's truths and, you, and your truths, then, then you are virtuous, then you pursue moral excellence. But the reality in the eyes of God, tolerance and inclusivity is not a sign of your holiness or your righteousness. It's a sign of your unrighteousness and a sign of your unholiness. The only reason you and I tend to overlook the sin of others and tend to overlook especially the sin in our hearts and the sin in our lives is because we think and we really believe that God tolerates sin more than we do or as much as we do. God is not like us. 
God cannot and will not tolerate sin. He is holy, he is perfect, he is just. And because of that, God punishes the ungodly and hell is a real place. But first, it requires us to believe that God's not that good, but also we're not that bad. How could a good God, a loving God, send anyone to hell Someone like me, well, Hitler, that's one thing, you know, murderer, rapist, and those individuals. But what we're reminded in Scripture, the standard is not relative to one another's goodness or badness. It's relative to God's standard. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has missed the mark. And so the first objection that doesn't make any sense biblically is that Uh, How could a good, loving God send any one of us to hell? Secondly, it is unfair to condemn the innocent who have never heard. How can you condemn to hell those who have never heard the gospel? The only problem with that premise is none of us are innocent. When you consider the scriptures in Romans 1, we're told that man is without excuse. When you take a look at the creation, it declares a creator. And creation is enough to condemn you. It may not be enough to save you, but when you see the glory of God in the heavens, you are pressed to recognize that there is a creator before whom we are accountable to. In Hebrews 10.29, if for those who think that we're more innocent than we truly are, Hebrews 10.29 says of those who don't trust in Christ or reject Christ. It says, of, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulated the spirit of grace? Anyone who describes themselves as a good moral person but rejects Christ and him crucified, in the book of Hebrews it says they have trampled the Son of God. The word trampled there is the same term that's used of salt that has lost its flavor and so you toss it to the ground where you trample upon it. Why? Because it's worthless. Those who hear the message of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection and reject it have tossed it away and described it as worthless and have trampled upon it. God takes that seriously. Those who reject Christ and him crucified have not just trampled on the Son of God, but have treated his blood as common. It's like the blood of, of those, uh, those animals that were, the blood that was shed in the Old Testament law times when, when, when they, would, they would provide these sacrifices. No, Jesus' blood is not like their blood. The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on behalf of guilty sinners like you and me atones for our sins past, present, and future. Do not treat the blood of Christ as common. Do not trample on the Son of God. This is more serious than we ever imagined. D.A. Carson says it rightly on hell. Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good blokes but just didn't believe that right stuff. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe, who persist in their God-defying rebellion. What is God to do? 
If he says it doesn't matter to him, then God is no longer a God to be admired. He's either amoral or positively creepy. For him to act in any other way in the face of such blatant defiance would be to reduce God himself. And so the second common objection is that it is unfair to condemn the innocent who have never heard or simply those who are considered morally good individuals who have not accepted Christ. And then thirdly, the common objection is how can anyone enjoy heaven if people are burning in hell? That may be a question that you may consider. How can I enjoy heaven when the lost are spending an eternity without God and his people forever in hell? People in my family, people among my friends, how can I enjoy heaven when people are punished in hell for an eternity without him? But Romans 9, 14 to 15 says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? No. No. Certainly not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. I'd like to suggest this morning, the idea of trusting in Christ means that we trust that he as God is just, is good, and is righteous. And what he does with those who have sinned against him and have died in their sin we can trust the Lord and rest in the care of our shepherd. And so we don't need to be worrying about those who are being punished in hell because in heaven we trust God to make that decision accordingly. Do you believe there is injustice with God? That's the question being asked. And the conclusion is there is no injustice with God. God is holy. God is just. God is perfect. And he chooses to have mercy on whom he will have Mercy. And so if the wrath of God is real, condemnation is real, God will punish the ungodly. If the wrath of God is real, hell is real. Thirdly, if the wrath of God is real, we need to be sure that we are prepared to meet our maker so that we're not standing among the unrighteous, but we are standing among the redeemed because our sins have been forgiven through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. And then fourthly, if the wrath of God is real, we have an obligation as believers and as Christians to let other people know it is. We have an obligation to encourage them to prepare for their maker to meet their maker at any moment because they are not promised tomorrow so that they are not found among the unrighteous who have rejected Christ and him crucified but are among the redeemed who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And John 3 17 to 18, the reason Jesus talked about hell was not in order to condemn the people, but in order to save them. John 3, 17, that follows John 3, 16, says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why do you talk about hell? So that people will flee from it into the loving arms and the redeeming arms of Jesus. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. One of my favorite quotes by Charles Spurgeon is this one as we warn people about the reality of hell. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees. 
imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. During my time in seminary, I don't remember a lot of the messages that were shared. I don't even remember the message that was shared on this particular day. But I do remember one of the takeaways at one of our chapels. They had put a cloth under all of our chairs. And at the end of the message, they said, pull out that cloth and save it with you. Take it wherever you go. Put it in your house. Put it in your bag, whatever you have. And it just reeked of smoke. And the reason every time you smelt that piece of cloth that reeked of smoke, it was a reminder that you need to be working with the unbelievers, sharing the good news of the gospel, snatching them out of the grips of Satan and hell, and pulling them in by declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as you trust God to turn their hearts to himself. And can I tell you, after a week of smelling that thing, I had to throw it away because I couldn't take the stench any longer, but what a wonderful reminder that we need to be about warning the lost of the reality of hell as we point them to the reality of heaven in Jesus Christ, their Savior and their Lord. Martin Marty once said this, if people really believed in hell, they wouldn't be watching basketball games or even TV preachers, they'd be out recruiting people. What a reminder of hell is a reality. Then we need to be make sure that we are prepared to make, meet our maker, that we are found among the redeemed and not the unrighteous, and that we're preparing as many people as possible for the same thing. The question is, do you really love your neighbor? Do you really love your coworkers to talk to them about the bad news as much as you talk to them about the good news in order to save their soul? It's worth it. And so first, how do we prepare ourselves as we consider that one day we'll meet our maker and prepare others? Number one, God is a God of wrath. Secondly, as we walk through verses five to eight, God is a God of rescue. We, we talked about the bad news, folks. This is good news. If God is a God of wrath and will punish the ungodly, I don't know about you, but apart from Christ, I'm among them. As the ungodly, as the worst among sinners, as Paul describes himself, I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. My heart, was, my heart is bent towards rebellion and not obedience to God. I was born into iniquity, and I knew from a very early age that my greatest desire in my heart, apart from Christ, was not to serve God, but to serve my own desires, and God has been working on me ever since as he revealed the truth of the gospel to me, as he rescued me from my sin, he continues to rescue me through this process of sanctification. And I look forward to the day when God will one day glorify me and us as we will be like Jesus, conformed into his image. The good news is that God is not just a God of wrath. God is a God of rescue. In our text, we see three examples of God's punishment, only two examples of his rescue. Why is that? In the days of Noah and the days of Lot, there are at least a remnant who are rescued. But when we're talking about the angels who have sinned, why is there no one who is saved? How come no one is preserved? Because the angels are not like us. Did you know angels are not created in the image of God? You are. 
That image might have been defaced by the fall, but it was preserved nonetheless. And when Christ died on that cross, he didn't die for fallen angels. He died for fallen sinners like you and like me. Sometimes we talk about people who have passed from this life to the next, and we talk about them saying, oh, they're an angel who passed into the next life. I don't want to be an angel in the next life, especially as a fallen sinner like myself. There is, no, there is no hope for the redeemed of the Lord to be among them. But as those whom Christ has died for, there is hope indeed. So the two examples of God's rescue is first in the days of Noah. The text continues in verse 5, and it says, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, his wife, his three sons, his, their, their, their wives, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. How is Noah described here? First, he's described as one of eight. You know, when we were talking about false teachers in the first three verses, if you remember in verse two, we were told that false teachers are quite popular. False teachers draw a crowd. As they itch your ears and tell you things that you want to hear. Preach about health, wealth, and prosperity. Don't talk to you about the truths of God's word. They're popular. They itch your ears. They entertain you. They make you happy. But the text tells us here that you've got a guy by the name of Noah who's building an ark. And as he's building the ark for over 100 years... And it takes up to 120 years before the ark is finished and God wipes out the unrighteous. It tells us here that he is a preacher of righteousness. And how many converts did Noah have? Outside of his family, none. And yet as a preacher of righteousness, he faithfully built that ark year after year after year. And people came around him and said, Noah, what are you doing? They laughed at him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They rejected his pleas that they would turn and repent and turn back to God so that they would not experience the punishment of judgment to come, that they might be spared along with Noah and his family. But as you see, God preserved a remnant. God preserved a faithful few, Noah and his family. So better remember this, that you may be among the righteous. It doesn't mean that you're going to be among the majority. Sometimes when you're staying faithful to the word of God and to the truths of scripture, while everyone else has turned their back to the Lord and to the righteousness that we hear about in his word, we continue to remain faithful. And you better believe if God preserved Noah in the past in his family, how much more will God preserve you and preserve me? These Churches and believers needed this reminder because of the the rampant false teachers who were coming in. These false teachers who were leading the people astray, deceptively calling themselves Christians, and the reality is not teaching the truths of Scripture, saying you can live however you want. Not like Romans 6 says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. May it never be. May genoita. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? My prayer is that you would stay committed to the truth of God's word. My prayer is that you would stay committed as set-apart believers to the Lord, that you would walk in holiness as he changes and transforms you into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ moment by moment and day by 
day. If God preserved Noah and his family, you better believe God will preserve you. God will preserve you in the midst of all of the wickedness that is around you. But my prayer is, as Noah was a preacher of righteousness, you would be as well. That you would not be afraid to declare the truth of God's word. And even when others say no to Jesus, that you would keep on pressing on. That you would continue to faithfully preach the gospel to your children. And even those children who have prodigals, who have left the home and are not following the Lord, continue to preach the righteousness of God and the truths of God's word. Your neighbors, your family, your circles of influence, those who have rejected Christ and him crucified, continue to press in and continue to share the good news of Christ. So first, God preserved Noah He'll preserve the righteous in the future. Secondly, God preserved Lot. He'll also preserve the righteous in the future. Now, if you read the Genesis account, some of you are wondering, Lot, when I think of a righteous man, is not someone who comes to mind. I mean, Lot, if you remember in Genesis 19, when um, the angels come into town and the people in the town say, we want to rape the angels, Lot says, well, don't rape them, rape my daughters. That doesn't sound very righteous to me. Lot, he later has an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters, and they have two, daughter, two sons, Moab and Ammon. So when I think of Lot, I don't think of a righteous man, but in the eyes of God, it tells us why he's considered righteous. And it says, in turning, verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot. He's considered righteous, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. We get the details. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless Deeds. This is a man who lived in an immoral culture and an immoral society. And as he took a look at the wickedness going on around him, the rampant sexual immorality, they didn't just practice sin in secret. They celebrated it. They were prideful about it. They did so in the light, not just in the night. And, and so we get to see here that in these days, Lot, as he takes a look at the wickedness around him, his soul is tormented. He's emotionally afflicted and distraught. He takes a look at the sin going on around him, and he's not entertained. He's tormented. Isn't it interesting how you watch some of the things that happen on television and what's going on in our movies. And as you take a look at some of the streaming services we have today, today you don't even have different ratings. You have mature and anything goes. And so we live in a culture where there is a moral and spiritual decline where you watch the television as you continue to watch the wickedness going on on it and listen to some of the music and you slowly get lulled and desensitized to the wickedness going on around you. And you watch certain movies, you watch certain television shows and instead of being tormented by their content, you're entertained instead. This morning, this is a reminder that we would follow the example of a righteous man like Lot 
who was tormented by the wickedness going on around him. It's interesting, if you take a break from watching streaming services or movies or television, take a break for a month or two months, go back and watch it, and you don't realize some of the vulgar language going on, the sexual immorality that is present, where it's celebrated and where it's a source of entertainment rather than that which should torment our souls. Twin Rivers Church, can I encourage you to ask God to to keep you from being desensitized to the wickedness of sin going on around you. Our culture seeks to normalize it. They seek to, they seek to put it everywhere. I mean, you've got, you've got different things being put into everything we watch and everything we listen to be on guard. But this is the encouragement. This is the reminder. If God preserved Lot... And if God preserved Noah, Lot who lives in this wicked culture, but he's still tormented, God will preserve you and God will deliver you from those trials and those temptations that you find yourself in from day to day. Maybe you're in a workplace that is hard to be a believer and a Christian because of the the, the stuff that's talked about, the gossip that goes on, the, the immorality that takes place. God will preserve you. God will take care of you. Trust in him and he will bring you out to the end. And so why do we need to be prepared to meet our maker? Because God is not just a God of wrath. He's a God of rescue and that's good news for all of us sinners out there. God is a God of rescue and my prayer is that in relationship to this message, you would not be found among the unrighteous having rejected Christ and him crucified following false teachers who are leading you astray, but you would be found among the redeemed. How do you make sure you're found among the redeemed, rescued as a sinner? Number one, by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. If you're here this morning, and if God were to take you, you were to meet your maker in this moment, you're not promised tomorrow, would you have the assurance that you would be found before Christ among the redeemed and not among the unrighteous because you have trusted fully in his sacrificial death on the cross? To do that, you simply have to admit your need for Christ. The Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God to admit your need for him that we were born into sin, that we were born with a heart of wickedness that expresses itself in all kinds of ugly ways in our attitudes, actions, and our affections. And then secondly, to admit that Jesus is the only solution. Jesus came from heaven to earth, died a sinner's death, in order to buy your salvation in mind so that anyone who would trust in him might have everlasting life. So admit your need in him. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the risen Savior who lived, died, rose, and offers salvation as a gift to you and me as a substitute on that cross, paying our debt. Then thirdly, confess Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so first this morning, trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness 
of God. Receive his righteousness. We are unrighteous, but we receive the righteousness of Christ applied to our account as we transfer to his our sin and he pays for it in full. Secondly, guard against growing insensitive to the impurity around you. I'd like to encourage us to repent, to tell the Lord there are things that they things in the culture that should torment my soul, and I am not tormented by them because I've been desensitized to them. Lord, stir my heart to love you, to love your word, to love your law, to follow after you all the days of my life. Let my heart break for what breaks yours. Let me not tolerate sin, but let me be intolerant of it in my life. Let me live a life set apart to you. Thirdly, prioritize God in his word and prayer. That's how we keep from being desensitized. I had a pastor uh, I knew in Arizona while I was out there. His name was A.B. Blair, and he once said this. I had a wise professor who told us, it is good to have an open mind, but like open windows, be sure you have a screen, and the screen for an open mind is the Bible. It's all right to have an open mind, but make sure you got the screen of the word of God and prayer. And then thirdly, if you've been rescued, you better not keep it to yourself. If you've been rescued from an eternity of punishment, spending an eternity without God and his people forever and ever, you don't deserve it, but you received his unmerited favor, his grace, you better not keep it to yourself. You better share it with as many people as possible. The reason God hasn't taken you, the moment you trusted in him as Savior and Lord is so that you might take as many people with you to heaven. So let's get the job done. And so how do we prepare to meet our maker? By recognizing that God is a God of wrath, God is a God of rescue, and lastly, God is a God of consistency. The if statement is found in verses four to eight. The then statement found in verses nine to 10 concludes this way. Um, Verse nine says this, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The God of wrath and the God of rescue is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He will rescue us from temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 10, this is the description. Let's bring it back to the false teachers in the context. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. How are these false teachers described here? And how are the ungodly described? These false teachers are those who don't recognize that they will give an account before God, where they will stand before their maker and they encourage others to live however they want, to live in sexual immorality, to pursue the pleasures of their heart, to live any way that they desire because they will not give an account before God someday. And so they live in sensuality and sin, and it tells us here, as we, <coughs> it tells us here at the end of uh, the second part of verse 10, they despise authority, they, dis- they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ and do not submit to it. Beware of anyone who doesn't believe the Bible to be true and claims to be a preacher of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Beware of anyone who does not, 
who takes away from the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, beware of anyone who might lead you and I astray. God is a God of consistency. Let me wrap it all up this morning with this. How do we prepare to meet our maker? Being ready to meet him at any moment and prepare others to do the same. Number one, if you are among the redeemed of the Lord, rejoice. If you are among the redeemed of the Lord, the Bible says, say so. As the redeemed of the Lord, you have a reason to celebrate because you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God raised you a newness of life and you have life eternal in his name. You have been forgiven. You are among the redeemed. Secondly, if you are among the unrighteous, you haven't trusted in Christ who died on the cross for your sins to forgive you and haven't received life eternal in his name, my encouragement is to run from the pit of hell into the loving arms of Jesus. Jesus has his arms open wide. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know why judgment was proclaimed all throughout the Old Testament instead of God immediately raining down fire and brimstone is in order that those who were walking in rebellion and ungodliness would have an opportunity to have their heart convicted and turn to Christ and him crucified don't leave here today still dead in your sins turn to Christ receive salvation and forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and lastly I'll close with this this morning adopt an eternal perspective you know Randy Alcorn once gave a great illustration he took a piece of paper and he said put a dot right in the middle and then from that dot draw a line that dot on that paper represents your life 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, some of us 90 years. It has a beginning and it has an end, but that line represents eternity. It doesn't just go to the end of the page. It goes on and on and on. What you and I have a tendency to do is stay focused on the dot, never thinking about the line. My encouragement to you this morning is that you would be prepared and ready to meet your maker, not just having trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, but having invested in the line, having vested in the eternal that will have eternal rewards as you'll spend eternity with God and his people forever and ever. So invest in the Lord, invest in your relationship with him, invest in believers and unbelievers, share the gospel with them because they are going to be an eternal reward that you get to hang out with for all eternity. And as you invest in God, his word, and in people, that's how we have an eternal perspective and enjoy the eternal reward that comes with it. Can we bow in prayer? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You're a God of wrath to those who reject you, and you will certainly punish the ungodly as you have done in the past. But we thank you and praise you that you are also a God of rescue who will preserve the righteous and the redeemed. Father, for all of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord and have received forgiveness of sins, we rejoice. We thank you that you have preserved us and will continue to preserve us until the day when we will be with you and your people forever and ever. 
Father, I pray for anyone this morning who doesn't have the assurance or has never made the decision to make Jesus their Savior and their Lord. That is among the unrighteous and the ungodly this morning, but I pray that you would stir their hearts even right now and convict them of their sins and turn their hearts to you. And Father, as you do, I pray that they can express this now or later. Father, I recognize that I am desperately in need of you. The reason I need you, Jesus, is because I've missed the mark. I've been born into sin, and my sin is what separates me from you. There is a chasm, a barrier between me and you, God. But I know that's why Jesus came. I know that's why he died on the cross, to bear my sin, to forgive it, to buy my salvation, so that if I trust in Jesus, I can have life eternal. Today, I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, this morning as believers, on behalf of believers here in this room, I want to confess our sin, Lord, of how we've become desensitized to the wickedness and sin in our own lives and the wickedness of sin going on in the world around us. Lord, you do not tolerate sin like we do. And so, Father, we pray that you would convict our hearts and turn us back to you, that we would love you, that we would love your law, that we would love your word, and that we would seek after you in all things. And, Lord, use us to, to speak truth to a culture that is desperately wicked around us as we have opportunity to point people to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. May it be a light into our feet and a lamp into our path this week. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.